Welcome to Collisions YYC Beyond the Echo. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with Sate Corporate Training. A huge thank you to Craig Hass and his team for their ongoing support of the Collisions YYC podcast. 40% of people globally are considering leaving their employer before the end of the year, according to a 2021 survey conducted by Microsoft. Whether you're a senior leader, a manager, or an individual contributor hearing that stat for the first time, it's going to get your attention. For me, aside from freaking me out a little bit, the first question I had to ask myself is why? Well, let's be honest. It's been 18 months of the pandemic and many of us are left unfulfilled and looking for change. This may be tied to lack of perceived advancement in your careers over the past year or by organizations being in survival mode versus growth mode or simply being, quote unquote, locked in our houses for the last 18 months. We're looking for something different and we're look, more importantly, we're looking for change. No matter what the reason, I think we're about to turn the corner to what is going to be the greatest economic opportunity of the past century. Are we ready? Since its founding in our province over 100 years ago, SAIT has been at the leading edge of what our citizens and companies need to be competitive locally and on the global stage. To find out more what they can do for you as an individual or as an organization, check them out at sate.ca slash corporate training, or better yet, open up your email and contact Craig Hess directly, craig.hess, H-E-S-S, at sate.ca. He'd love to chat with you and walk you through your needs and more importantly, how they can help. Hello and a warm collisions. YYC Beyond the Echo. Welcome to Danny Hooper. How are you, Danny? I'm doing very well. How are you? I am great. You are officially, I think, um, my farthest away guest. Is that a, is, yeah, my guest calling in for the farthest away. You're calling from, you're in Malmo, Sweden. So maybe for us, maybe we, the, those of us who don't have an atlas or a uh, round globe, because uh, we're at our grandmother's house in front of us, where <laughs> is Malmo, Sweden in, in kind of position in the world? Give us a quick, give us a quick position update. <laughs> Super. So it's in the south of Sweden. We are connected by road to Denmark. So our closest city, believe it or not, is Copenhagen in Denmark. And we're just separated by a bridge. Um, after that, you've got mid uh, Sweden, you've got Skåne, which is the area I'm in. So that's the province you would call it. Okay. And then we're very far from uh, Stockholm in the north. So we really are at the southern tip. Okay, interesting. So, and when you, know, you think of you think of Stockholm and some of the neighbors that pump mm. Malmo, I'll be honest, wasn't really top of my mind in terms <laughs> of tourist destinations. I was going to Sweden, but you work you're you work in global public relations and media affairs at IKEA, and so is Malmo really IKEA? Like, do those two things go really hand in hand? Absolutely. You know, when I moved to Sweden, the first thing people asked me, I said, do you work for, for IKEA? And I said, yes, I in fact do. So you can imagine, first of all, not only is IKEA what is known as Sweden and one of the main companies here, among others, uh, but yeah. also it's the fact that a small land that is closer to the south is where IKEA began. Um, and so Ingvar, which is our founder, uh, is where he started, where he grew. He was an incredibly respectable man in, in Sweden. And also he's, you know, he is one of those founders for Sweden as to a man that really went out of his way to uh, hire people to grow the industry. Right. So IKEA is very much known in the southern Sweden. So lots of pride, lots of connection to community. Like, lots. Because it's so easy as an outsider to go, oh, IKEA Sweden. But it kind of, for again, I'll be I'll be I'll be uh, transparent. It kind of stops there often of fully understanding the impact and the role that a company like IKEA can play over. And how? What's the history? How? When did he start IKEA? Nineteen forty-three. So he well, basically just actually, coming right out before World War II was even over. <laughs> absolutely, and he actually started by selling pens. 
uh, in his small uh, town of, in Småland, where he's from. And, uh, and, I, and I won't say it because otherwise I will, I will butcher the language. But uh, he started by selling actually pens from there. He actually grew to serve furniture. Then he had a small furniture house, which is where he started. And then he grew in the same area. He started establishing long connections with uh, Eastern Europe. Right. So Poland oh, okay. was, a, you know, in terms of transportation uh, and production. So he was he was a very, very savvy man very early on in his career. Through some very interesting times as we, you know, you and I were chatting Absolutely. offline about COVID and all the disruption that it's happened and opportunities it's created and no more disruption than what happened in Europe, obviously globally, but obviously Europe, the epicenter of World War II, to mm-hmm. come out of that and to build something literally out of the ashes of well, World and, War II. And he, was, he started as a mail order sales business. So that's really how it started. So you can imagine a mail order sales business to what IKEA is today. So you, and, and he was there from the beginning to the end. Oh, that's um, so an awesome story. Impressive. It really is. And for you, and obviously beyond the Echo, we like to reach out and talk to people that are expats anywhere around the world that have a Calgary connection. So maybe let's talk about a little bit your Calgary connection, and then we can get into like, I, man, I have so many directions this conversation could go today. So well, I think we should just lay the framework. So you've spent a lot of time working in Calgary prior. Did you, did you go from Calgary direct to Sweden? Was that kind of your transition? That was. And actually, okay. all my work history has been in Calgary prior to Sweden. Okay. Oh, interesting. Okay. And you've worked in the oil and gas sector. I know you've worked in government relations. Have you always worked in the angle of like, and we'll get into kind of your role now around PR. And I'm, of course, I'm creeping on your LinkedIn, like any good creeper (laughs) these days. And you've got a lot of, there's a lot of subs underneath your title right now of kind of what you deal with. Have you always come up through the corporate comms kind of side of the house? Has that been your journey to where you are now? Yeah, I mean, it's quite an interesting question because when I started, um, I was actually hoping to go into career diplomacy. So that was first and foremost my, my focus. So I studied international relations at UFC in Calgary. And, uh, you know, that was that had been my dream my whole life. Once I started, my first job was actually at the British government, which I did trade and investment. So that was actually the first road in to what I consider to be the start of a diplomatic career because I thought if I like this experience and I can follow those footsteps. Okay. Um, and, and so that was more so government relations was more the focus of what I was interested in, let's say, to begin with. Then trade and investment, business development came hand in hand because that's what I learned. Um, and then, of course, if you work at the British government, we worked in a very, very small office that then grew. You were also doing marketing and communications. So I actually got to see that side and I got to say, OK, this is very interesting as well. I could also venture into this path. So it's been quite varied, to be honest, but also very useful because when you start your career, you don't really know what you want in my case. And I had to see what it is that was interesting for me to pursue. I think that's, there's a lot of, you know, so many, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know. I haven't, you know, I, I don't know all the things that I could learn I along, the, al- along the, I still don't know. <laughs> Touche. And I yeah. saw obviously um, senior business advisor, stakeholder engagement. You were at Suncor from 2013 to 2015. Yeah. Uh, June, 2015. Was that, was that when the penny dropped in terms of when things really started to turn that in was terms of the economy? Okay. A hundred percent. So, what happened is I, I started, actually, I left the embassy thinking, you know, I had learned as much as, you know, because you know how it is, right? You get to a point that you know you've learned enough and you know that the growth is, is stagnant from here on, right? And that's when you do your You start move. bumping your head against the, the, the good old glass. You, you know that this is it and now I need to go. Um, and then I moved actually to Suncor doing project and change management, which is quite different than what I had been doing previously, but 
that has change management, as we all know, has a very strong uh, communications component. So yes. it was something that I was doing that I knew about marketing as well. So it was a good fit. But I had to learn a lot about the energy industry as such. So those were really it was it was a very challenging time. The first two years there learning about the industry, learning about what Suncor does, all its assets, and then actually growing into that change management role and growing into five different projects that they had within infrastructure and logistics, which I was. Then the penny dropped in June. And that's when I decided to pursue my education. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that was part of the transition. So I can only imagine Suncor during that time being the size of, you know, obviously the organization that they are, Mm. change management, comms, stakeholder engagement, like that is a massive undertaking for a company that is that public, that ingrained in the communities that they're in. Like they don't do anything small (laughs) or they certainly don't do anything under the radar. (laughs) But it also makes you, makes you, you know, it, it just pauses you to think in those moments where you have such a deep recession, right? What is business critical and what isn't? Right. Mm, And then you start thinking, what kind of role should I really be in that is business critical versus those that aren't? So that was a really good food for thought. Right. Because I started working in areas that I didn't want to work within the company. Right. So it was better to leave than actually stay. Right. And in that case, a lot of us were being forced that ways anyways. So it was it was a really interesting time to be at Suncor. What another thing that I saw at that point when the penny dropped was how many good resources the company was losing to only hire them a year or two after. You know, so it was quite, there was quite a brain drain even within the company. Um, but, but that was a necessary evil at that point. If you uh, yeah, it. It, it was across the board from small to medium, but you're right. How many good, really, how many talented, highly skilled individuals also found themselves out of work, which mm. for honest, like for many years, that was a fairly new phenomenon in Calgary. Like that, you could literally, everyone would just move across the street or you maybe one opportunity. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't even that the opportunity would go away. Just often a better opportunity would come up <laughs> across, exactly. across the street. So I noticed you've got you've got a bit of a break here. Obviously, you've got 2015 to 2019, and you made mm-hmm. the comment about pursuing education. So yep. was it really like you took a look at Calgary and said, "Hey, you know what? I don't like where this is headed. I'm going to go retool, reskill, and kind of see where the road." And I think it's an interesting conversation because a lot of people probably found themselves in a very similar like mm-hmm. a kind of a reckoning when the mirror starts looking back at you and go, "Hey, where where, where are we go? Where are we going from here?" <laughs> no, exactly. And and I think it's a it's actually a really good question because I think to myself, what I had to do is repurpose myself. So I had to say to myself, "How how determined are you? Are a in this industry, in this business, in this sector? Are you really committed to it?" Right. And those were questions for me that I actually had never had to ponder because I was always in the set, in that industry and in the energy sector. Right. Which is very interesting for what it is for, you know, for the resource it is for how much we we trade and invest with different companies in different countries around the world. Um, and so obviously it was something that was enticing to me to be at the time. But once I had to look at myself, like you said, in the mirror, I had to think, OK, I'm not that committed, actually. So I could learn about other industries. I could actually put my head in another pond and see how others do it and then see what I could bring maybe in the future back or see what I can grow elsewhere. So that was my first my first reckoning. I think the second one was I need to reskill. Um, I had already started my MBA, but I decided, okay, now is the time where I have to actually fully commit to it and finish. And this break will help me figure that out. But I think third and most importantly is where do I want to go in terms of forget industry and sector or even country, but what do I want to do? Right. Uh, because I really believe passion has to count for something. I don't believe in, in this whole theme of, oh, if you what is it? If you find the job you love, you never work a day in your life. I don't believe that. I believe that you work and there's admin and there's shit. And I'm sorry, but that's the reality of life. However, passion should count for something to what you want to do. 
Well, that you little know, bit of passion helps helps make the shit not feel as deep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. the best way I've heard it so far. <laughs> you no, know, that that the over. I'm gonna repeat well, we, that we, actually. Yeah, please do. We like to we we oversell the shiny too much. Okay? Like every job has the shit. I love. I thank you for your honesty around that one. Oh, we paint these ridiculous pictures, and then people wonder why they can never attain it because it was never real in the mm. first place. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So for you know thinking about obviously I've had a lot of guests on the show that have talked about you know oh the talent gap or the talent drain or people that have left Calgary or how do we get talented individuals here to evolve, not only to support our energy sector that is evolving and going to going through a little bit of a good, starting to be a little bit shinier right at the moment. But mm. you know, when you decided to broaden your horizons, was it about yep. I'm going to leave Calgary or it's, I'm just going to look for what's out there. And you know what I mean? Like card horse destination yep. versus just, you had your head up. You know what it was is that I, I actually needed to understand what other sectors work like and what other positions could be like. So I think I was very limited in Calgary for the type of positions I could attain with my background. So for example, anything to do with international relations, right? I would be limited to working for the Alberta government. Maybe not limited, maybe the way I saw limited at the time, that could be it as well. But I yeah, how, how many employment options do I have? I appreciate Correct. that. Correct. And, and that would be in government relations, either in private or in public with government. That was really the option. So I thought to myself, what about trying something else in a different city, in a different location, but more so a different industry? Because then if I understand government relations, if I do PR, if I do media in a completely different uh area of the world. It would be completely different. And also, I was very curious to know what that North America-European divide would be like, right? We understand things from a very North American perspective. How is it to work in Europe, right? And specifically in the Nordics, right? I, I knew and understood how Sweden, for example, was very much a socialist state. I understood mm -hmm. coming here, you would have a lot of benefits. Um, I wanted to know how government worked, you know, in, in relation to, uh, to industry, so there was a lot of personal interest socially there that I wanted to see and discover culturally. And as well, of course, there was, I wanted to try a different industry, but I did not know I would end up in retail for now. And that's also okay. very, very new for me. But however, I wanted to expand my horizons about what I could actually do in PR and government relations when it wasn't just energy specific. So that's what led me to look into Europe. Interesting. I love, I want to pull on that thread a little bit about moving to a country. You're right. I, I can't, even when I know I'm doing it, I still have a set of, rose covered glasses that have been programmed mm. and been colored in by my mm. North American, the way I was raised, the way I went to school, the people I spent time with moving to a country where it is a very, like a very heavily socialist undertone and the mm. way it operates. How has that been for you? Just like especially being in government relations and seeing the different roles that government plays and maybe even more importantly, how they're looked at by their constituents, i.e. the population. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's it's very, very different, like you said, and it's uh, it's been an eye opener for many ways. So as you know, the positive and the negatives. So I think in a, in a positive way, for example, if I just tie it to my experience alone, not looking at even so much from an economic benefit wise, we understand here economically, right? We know say, taxes are much higher here, right? Income tax around the same, sales tax is higher. What does that okay. mean? That means that the government, right, then gives a lot of money towards certain things for people. So for example, parental leave, for example, infrastructure, for example, daycare, right? Government pays here for you. You don't pay for education, right? That's a massive plus for me, right? As a person that's constantly re-educating themselves. So um, economically, a lot of benefits. However, there is the other side of the coin, right? Working here, you see that benefit come directly from government into industry because you've got unions here and you have very, very strong unions that are actually... Okay. 
if, if you come from my North American perspective, when I arrived, somebody said to me, when I arrived, you should join the union. I said, I don't want to join the union. I that would have been, been my first answer. I, I hear no, the word I mean, union, I, I, I get all squirmy. I was bothered by it, you know? I mean, it was like, if you want to talk about slow bureaucratic employee rights, just, you know, it, that is fine, but it, it goes over the top and then industry can move forward. I mean, that was my perception. Right. And then, of course, I come here, people say, no, 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 it's, it's very beneficial because, for example, if you lose your job, right, you have over a year of compensation at 80 or 90 percent of your salary and what you pay is minimal. You know, they also protect you. So if, for example, you have an issue where there's actual some it's not it's not frowned upon either. Right. Okay. And that's what's also it's the perception of it and what it holds. The majority of people in Sweden are joined by unions in every single company. So it's not just construction and it's not specific okay. places. So it's uh, so, for example, that was something where you could see very much the influence in industry. Um, and, and not only that, but from a personal perspective on the negative side, I thought to myself, OK, there's a lot of bureaucracy here. Right. I feel like things move slower. Right. I think that, you know, that idea in North America where today, you you know, you today you start a project today, it finishes, you're moving, you're done, you're chasing the carrot very much a North American way of, of operating, which is very beneficial, you know, in some ways, because you're getting things done at a, such a rapid speed, you know, um, and, and and you can really see the difference. Um, and, and, it, and again, being in Sweden as well and having the ability to, you know, for example, if you talk about it from another benefit from, that goes directly from the government to co- into companies is how much time you have off. You know, in North America, you have three weeks. Here you have at least six weeks. If you're a parent, you have over six weeks. Um, you have paternity leave over 480 days amongst both parents, if you can believe that. Here, it is very normal to see a father walking in the street with a stroller. The mother is nowhere to be seen. That's something that you don't really see. Where we live, not to, no, right? not to the same. I think it's starting to slowly move in that direction, but 100%. you're right. There, but there's still stigma around it in North America. There is, uh, uh, and there's, and you know what? I have that stigma here, so uh, you know, I, I I see it, and I'm just like, oh right, that is okay. Um, so a lot of benefits that I see in Sweden, um, and but but it does move at a slower pace, I find, and and that has just been my my you know my findings so far. However, Swedish people do things well. I mean, IKEA has done very well for very long, so they're doing something right. Um, I was you know. curious the, the question around speed. So you don't, you can have it good, you can have it fast, you can have it cheap, you can't have all three. Or you know, no. there's a there's a million jokes around that triangle. But I'm yeah. curious. Sometimes in North America, I think sometimes we do compromise. We value speed over quality. And when I say quality, I mean like taking the time to really understand the problem. Or mm-hmm. no, no, we're just going to run forward, and if we fail, we'll just retool and we'll try something else. Do you find that there's a bit of a different quality or depth? And I'm just projecting some of my own thoughts on this. Quality yeah. or depth in the outcome of projects that take a little bit longer, but were they more thoughtful in that process or did it just take longer? <laughs> I, I don't want to no. just assume one one equals the other. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. And it's also hard to generalize because if I think about the energy industry specifically, right, I felt that there was speed and quality, to be honest, okay. in everything yep. that we did. And it's because obviously a, a company like Suncor was very process oriented, very safety oriented, so they could not afford right? To actually make big mistakes, right? Well, it often uh, is a life and death environmentally. Yeah. Cost so of it human was very life. different, but, but I do feel in general here, it's much more methodical. And the difference here, the reason also that it's slower is because it's consensus. So everybody has to have not only their opinion, but their say, and it has to be agreed upon. Ah, interesting. That's okay. what, what takes the longest time. So, and, and you can imagine that's where the, the, what you're saying is actually a good thing, because of course you're thinking about quality when a, everybody has their say. And second of all, you really analyze something in depth in so much so that you're getting to a result. But the other side of the coin is when you're getting consensus from everyone, 
Um, it's, it's, it's a leg, I mean, I'm not even going to go into that, but it's a leg yeah. process. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, no, just thinking about it, working in working in marketing and creative and like what the industry I've been in for years, the companies that all have to get consensus, especially around something creative, like let's just play with the color blue for for an example. <laughs> it, it's it's you have to factor like that can be thirty or forty percent of your project is just working through consensus, and exactly. that only leaves a portion of the project for the work. And some mm. companies, and it just depends. And you know, the joke is the hippo. You know, the highest paid person's opinion. I've worked with a lot mm-hmm. of companies where somebody just stands up and kind of bangs their pseudo gavel on the table, and then that then it has been decided. Uh, that can be very problematic exactly. as well. <laughs> But you know, you're, you're lighting up another factor is that uh, because of the system here, it's not very hierarchical. And specifically, IKEA is not very hierarchical. So for example, one of the great things that I found when I started my career, and I, and I tell you, there are so many more benefits than anything, is that okay. I started and, and I could speak to the CEOs, I could speak to the VPs, I could speak to the analyst. It didn't matter who they were. They all yeah. wanted to meet with you. They all wanted to understand what your position was. They all want to understand how you fit in the, in the, in the, in the, in in the company and what your role is. And that actually I found extremely beneficial because not only can you network, right, with every position, which is beneficial as we know, but you can also learn from many different types of jobs without actually having to reach that hierarchy and status, which actually I found extremely uh, marked in North America. It, it feels like, it feels like when you read or, you know, what's the popular narrative right now that that is what we're aspiring to, but yet it's still mm-hmm. so entrenched in that, like, well, you know, don't go, don't go to, don't go to the floor 20 because that's where the executives hang out. The one exactly. Or the hip, like you said, the hippo, which yes. is, which is a, can be a good thing for decision-making, but also who's the hippo, right? A hundred percent. You know and what I mean? Times in North America, it's an old white guy. And I don't want to open that can of worms because <laughs> that's a whole nother conversation. A hundred percent. But I do notice, and I'm going to bring it up, uh, Forbes Women, uh, the Forbes Women Forum, I notice uh, that you're on, which mm. maybe we'll talk about that in a second. But how is the how is the gender balance? Like, it's a conversation that's everywhere these days, but I, know, I only know the North American perspective and clearly the challenges and the things we need to improve on. Is that different when you, as soon as you break down the hierarchy, does the gender also level out as well? You know, the hierarchy and also, again, the government uh, focus on equality among sexes in Sweden. And also Sweden is very open to gender fluidity, to equality of thought, um, and, and very much so. So it's not something, you know, a lot of companies obviously just, just wash their rhetoric to say something. Of Sweden is very, very much that way. So, so for example, as I said to you, even if you're a parent, uh, both sexes equally uh, with their children in the playground. So it, it's embedded in the system. So you can see it in every day. You're, it's not something you have to sell. It's within the system. And actually, if you speak to people in Sweden socially, right, they, they don't see much of a difference. Uh, and, and they don't talk about that difference as much, even That's jokingly. So, so that shows you that it's not even embedded into the joking culture as much anymore. So, um, so I see that, of course. But, for example, from companies' perspectives in Sweden, in the Nordics, it's very much focused. So, for example, at IKEA, we have 50-50 split between uh, gender roles in a management position throughout the company at the moment. Okay, so it's 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 arguably not even a conversation because it's not it's no. not part of the narrative. No, I now love the conversation lo- is gender fluidity. That's the okay, conversation because we- we're all learning. Yes, right? but it, yeah, it's hard to get to there if you don't even have the base right of. of mm-hmm. And I love what you said about it's not even part of the, You can tell a lot about a culture and a society by what it makes jokes about. And I love that you say it's not even part of the humor the humor dialogue. Yeah, we had, and I can tell you, I had a personal Mm. joke with someone from Alberta actually making a joke here about men versus women, but it's obviously a joke and it's not real. I mean, we even know it's a joke, right? I found it as a joke, but they found it like, well, you know, it can be man or woman. And I remember hearing that and thinking, okay, that's not funny here, even though we we said it as a joke as in it's not true, but here it wasn't even something you would think of as a joke. 
So I, that made me really ponder, okay, so we're in a very different situation in terms of gender equality, but also in terms of the fact that, you know, females here are, you know, from what I've seen, and again, I don't have kids, so it's hard for me to say, but I see the, the split between men and women as in, in terms of sports, in terms of education, equal, because I think, you know, we talk a lot about women in boardroom positions and how that's lacking. We should first be talking about the education that women receive in parity to men to make sure that they can reach those positions. Right. And to me, education is everything. So I think that they in Sweden, there is no distinction there. That's so powerful. And we think about our Canadian education system and we, you know, because we often compare ourselves to the U.S. So we feel we're so much farther ahead from mm. a cost accessibility than, you know, my U.S. friends and neighbors that are like, oh, I got to send my kid to school this year. I got to make sure I put it, put aside the 80 grand or whatever the case may be. Exactly. But when you talk about it, not only is it even more accessible, it's more ba- it's even more balanced right from kind of day one. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it's how I feel about it. I mean, it would be very interesting to have a Swedish perspective on it. Yes, uh, and, sure. and how far maybe they feel that they we are. We are still to. two North Americans talking about their education exactly. system, which I appreciate. Mm. I wonder how they think about it and how behind they are compared to someone else. But I, I do really feel that the, the you know, the equality is, is, is seen. It's, it's actually not. It's perceived. It's seen. And also working in business, you can really tell whether a company you know, is saying something for, for the show of it or whether they really mean it. And Ikea, you know, there is massive work going on right now, right? For gender parity, gender equality, even to the point of hiring, you know, as in, are you allowed to ask these questions when you're hiring people? Are you allowed to ask about gender, right? Why should, why should that matter? You know, um, so very difficult questions um, that we're asking ourselves and the data that we're collecting from it. But we think it's a very important step because it's one of the steps to say, okay, what are we really measuring for? We want to make sure people are up for the skills for a job. What, what, for, unless it's for statistics, not saying that it matters or not, taking that aside, what matters the most, right? So a lot of movement there here. And from, you know, interesting, being at a, being Suncor energy sector, very much the business community, being Ikea, which is consumer facing brand, being in comms, being in seeing change management, uh, kind of, I'm also curious from the perspective of trying to bring this back to what can, what can we learn and what can we do better uh, is, as companies in North America, more specifically companies in Calgary, what are you seeing from a PR perspective? I love what you said, like some PR sometimes just gets relegated to this, like, yeah, we're saying this great storyline, but we're not really living it. But when you get into change management and kind of really how a company operates, what were some of the differences that kind of hit you just even moving from the B2B style world or more like even though Suncor is very ingrained in the communities to a pure consumer play and how those two companies treated the way they communicate with their audiences? That's a really good question. I think, of course, B2C, B2B, very, very different. But specifically when you're doing PR and communications, because, of course, I'm focused exactly on on what audiences think, what employees think, what uh, prospective uh, buyers think, future buyers think. Uh, so it's very different. But one of the things that, that, I, that I see quite a bit is, so I, I see IKEA has a very strong involvement in the community. And what I mean by that is not just the community socially, but actually even the business community in places like the World Economic Forum. They really want to, and, and Suncor actually is involved in that as well, but, but in a different way. What we're trying to do is, I think IKEA, is, as it's such a consumer-facing brand, and as it's a company, of course, it produces a lot because you can't get out of that. It needs to really focus on what's the benefit for communities and society. So it has ingrained about four different areas, like a better IKEA, right? The focus is on the retail and technology aspect. When we think about technology, we're using technology just to improve the lives of people, 
right? And actually use less infrastructure, lose less transportation, right? Do more automation, do more AR. What does that mean? How can you use your phone, your computer, right? And, and how can you help, uh, you know, the environment? So one of the things that I've seen, for example, that's a big difference is, of course, a company like Suncor, legally and safety-wise, has to focus on certain parameters, right? They have to do community investment. They have to do sustainability. They also have a really, you know, I mean, depends who you ask. I mean, I'm, I'm not even going to get into the politics of that. But, but the thing is, in Ikea, because it's more consumer-facing directly in what I do, there's a, it's a bigger, bigger focus on sustainability. So, for example, we have the year of sustainability next year. We have signed the Paris Agreement as the company that signs the Paris Agreement going forward. We have specific targets. We are making all of our vehicles EV, and that is our focus for the next few years. So there's some serious movements towards actually climate change, a greener economy that can be seen in the infrastructure of the company to then service society. Um, another thing that you can see directly from B2C is that you can see direct effects to consumers, like moving from, you know, the B, the big blue store to city centers. What does that mean? That means going where people are, less transportation again, less moving, more convenient, right? So really our goal as a company is how can we service the many people wherever they are within wallets? And you can ask anyone at Ikea, they're here to service the many people within wallets. That, that is what Ikea's goal is. And so you can see it very directly and transparently in all they do. Um, and that's very different to the position I was in, of course, first of all, because I was dealing a lot in the logistics area. So I know that Suncor had very good, you know, uh, goals towards reducing, you know, carbon emissions in their logistics, uh, you know, but it was a very, I mean, you're talking about an energy resource, you're talking about oil and gas. So the stakes are much higher, right? Yeah, it's kind of a very different parameter there. It's very, very different. You know, you're, you're creating products here for consumers over here, you're building and taking a resource from the land. Right. And there's bigger implications on one versus the other. And I worked on consumers direct with consumers directly here, whether as I didn't work with consumers directly there. So my goal at Suncor was to work on change management to make sure projects were communicated well upon so that they, they could actually work effectively. Right. Versus in your role now. And you're also how many how many different jurisdictions? Is it countries? Like, how do you how many places is Ikea? That's a weird. Is it, is it based on countries or how do you guys divide it? Yep. So we're a franchise system, um, and our franchise oh, okay. store is actually I, I, didn't in, know, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Inter IKEA Systems is our franchise store. We are the largest franchisee and strategic partner to the franchise store Inca Group. That's who we are. Okay. Um, and we are in 32 countries. We have over 378 stores worldwide. Oh, nice. I didn't, I, I could have Googled that, but I didn't. I was too busy no, focusing on you. I was too busy focusing on your LinkedIn. <laughs> but to be honest with you, it's very confusing because obviously we're, I, I think the best way to think of Ikea is many companies, one brand. Okay. That, that's uh, how we look at ourselves. The good old house of brand versus branded house conversation. A hundred percent. I mean, there's no okay. way, other way to go about it. If you say to anybody, Inca sold you a product, they would have no idea. When you buy a product from the Canadian store in Calgary, it's actually an Inca store. But however, we are Ikea, all of us. Um, okay. but we are a franchise system. So that, that's how we operate these days. How much do you guys into thinking about, there's a lot of, there's a lot of companies in Calgary now that, for, and mm. I think it's very positively, they have their customers globally. They're not, they're not, they're based here, but they're selling around the world. How much mm. do you shift and change your story? Cause that, that's the old kind of conversation around brand architecture or even messaging. Mm. Yeah. This is who we are and this is what's valuable to us, but maybe that message will resonate a little bit differently in country A versus country W <laughs> when you get yeah. hit down the line. How much do you guys curate that narrative? 
It's quite a, another very interesting question. I love these marketing PR specific questions because you're, you're really going to the root of, of what I do every day, you know, branding. Um, but uh, the, it's interesting. So the, back in 1943, right, when Ingvar started or when, you know, he opened up his business, as I said, mail order um, sales business, it was very much a small business and then group. But, the, but we, he had what is called the furniture dealer, um, you know, and it's kind of a Bible. To, to the IKEA people and how to how to be uh, morally how how to work with employees how to care um, that has stayed throughout throughout the company's legacy and history and the reason why that's important is because then we've you know through that time we've developed very important values at IKEA right those values have are part of what the vision and the mission is of the company so it's leading by example um, you know and and so for example eight or nine of these values have become an intrinsic part of who we are, but also the exact values for how the company hires. So if you don't actually, um, uh, if you don't actually show those values when you're being, you don't get hired. So that's very important. Values done right, right there. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and actually when I, and I can tell you, I can tell you by experience that when I was hired, I was actually tested by the values. So, um, and, and, I love and, that. And I think so many of us aspire to that, but we don't always get to pull it off. They end up sitting on a shelf or they get dusty and we get distracted, but that's a, I love that story. That's very inspiring. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and that's, and that's just who they are. I mean, you know, and one of their big values, for example, is togetherness, right? Uh, meaning that everything we do, as long as we work at it together, we might make mistakes. We start over, right? Caring for people and planet cost consciousness. That's another one. So for IKEA, those are bases that will never leave. So when you go back to the narrative, those values that are very tied to the mission and uh, to the mission are very strong. So everything that we do, it, it, there's always a base of doing it together, being cost conscious, caring for the planet. So it doesn't matter what time period goes by, they will always be embedded in the narratives because that's the focus of the company. Now, having said that, that's kind of the base branding, like you're saying, and you know, and the actual, uh, what do you call it, the base narrative, and what the company's position and leading position is. However, when you're talking about per country, for example, if you're looking at Canada, you take that narrative, but then you adjust it to to the country you're working in. But that's more in terms of the advertising and the marketing. That's what yeah, I would when, say. When you get out there to the actual, what you're seeing on the on the, on the billboard, let's just, you know, the digital exactly. billboard or physical, because Gaikia still, I think, does physical billboards. I think I've seen some billboards. Yes. <laughs> You guys still do out of home. Still, it, still. It's, it's, a, it's about a mix, right? And humans are not one dimensional. We get our, we get our um, influences from many, many, many places. And often we don't even realize we're getting influence from those places. Mm, it's true. Exactly. So you, you guys definitely, so thinking about companies that are here that are looking abroad, I guess, and do you use teams on the ground in those individual countries to say, okay, what is trending here? What is the narrative? Cause you're right in marketing comms culture is such an underpinning. And if you don't live it, it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to make it a purely academic exercise, if that sounds right. Absolutely. And then looking at business ethics and actually country by country culture, there's books to teach us about how to operate in different uh, countries culturally, because it's not done the same in Japan as it is done in Canada nor in Sweden. So right. absolutely, we have teams on the ground. Um, now, what's interesting about my role, talking about the southern of Sweden and Enholt is, is this place where IKEA started and I've been to, which is fascinating because they have an IKEA museum. I recommend I'm sure it they do. Anyone. Absolutely. <laughs> it's very cool, you know, for anyone. But um, what's interesting there is, you know, the company started there, but then the marketing communications, the global PR is actually done from here, from the South or Sweden, which means that our 378 or 32 countries our 378 markets have their own marketing communications people. And so we 
we they work with us and we work with them to ensure that all the narratives, all the main messages are aligned. Because of course we come from a global messaging uh, where we're doing everything corporately globally and we have to make sure that that is disseminated to the countries but we also have to make sure above that, if anything, that we're listening to them and understanding what the issue is in the market, what can we actually sell in the market, how can we speak of a certain item in the market? It's very intrinsic. And then, of course, we're talking politics. So, for example, when the, the U.S. election was on, we had to be extremely careful what we communicate about because we want to be seen. We want to make sure that we are, um, what's the, the word, sensitive, right, to whatever to whatever is going on in a country. Right. Um, and, and and I know that these days talking about brand and I know maybe this is going to be your next point is about talking about political activism. And, uh, the and many and roles, the many roles that, brand, that brands play now. Yeah, exactly. And companies can't get away from that. So I think that's one of the interesting uh, situations that IKEA is in now, where is how do we protect the brand, promote the brand? How do we also stand up for what is right? But how we also live, understand and respect sensitivities per culture, per country? Because it's very important as well, right? You can't, you, you can't uh, what do you call it, represent a country as such. So we've got brands like Patagonia, right? Amazing political activism, you know, they'll close the doors when, when it's time for the polls, you know, um, you know, and, and, and I admire that because they're taking a stance, right? So really the question for us now is how do we take a further stance at the same time? How do we respect communities around us? So interesting. And I, I, I even, it seems like, and I always want to be careful uh, that that is ramping up the, like when I think about crisis communications being one of your titles mm -hmm. here, how much more of your job have you seen? I think this is relevant to all companies, big and small. It just mm -hmm. seems like we've got more of these fires, like a fire will burn and then another one will burn. And through the course of COVID and whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's the Trump yeah. administration, so many things that now companies are getting drawn into a fold where it's mm -hmm. like, hey, we're just trying to do business over here. Just leave us alone. We're just going to mind our own. But that's not what people are looking for. They're looking for what your stand is. Has that mm -hmm. part of your job or is that part of the reality? Is that, is that only going to, has it grown? And do you see it continuing to just be more and more part of your everyday? Like, how are we going to respond to this? Start with the values, mm -hmm. work out from there. Mm -hmm. I think it has grown tremendously. I think it yeah. has grown since I've started in this job. Um, you know, uh, from the moment I started to now, when I used to work in, in the government, I mean, there was no consideration for things uh, to the level that they are now. And I think, of course, like you said, we have Black Lives Matters. We have everything from cancel culture to rising sensitivities, rightly so, right, that have been brewing for a long time. Yeah, these right? things are brewing so, because they're, they're real, right? They're, they're problems that have not been given the, maybe the... the, the they, they've got a they've got the soapbox that they deserve and they need and they just haven't had it the same way in the last 10 years mm -hmm. yeah and sometimes you need to actually exasperate an issue to create balance eventually right I mean maybe that's a way of looking at it I don't know I don't know but the, the point is yeah absolutely when it comes to crisis um, and when it comes to actually uh, you know a lot of the things that we say now we have to be much more careful in what we say with how we say it and make sure that we're very respectful but I think from a consumer perspective which is what I always think about is, I think it betters companies because you're forcing them to be more transparent, you know? Um, and that's very important because one thing is to say something, another thing is to live by it. And I think consumers now are actively involved. Social media has changed everything, you know? You have people coming in right now, everybody has a voice, you know? And they can boycott your brand in five minutes. So really, I want that. As a company, I want that and embrace that because then I say to myself, how transparent am I being? What can I actually do to improve it? And if I haven't done it well, then I'm going to say, you know what? We've sucked at this, but we're going to improve. 
you know, and, and be open about it. Now, it depends what company you're talking about. Again, you know, for example, you've got a lot of issues in, in, in Alberta when you're talking about energy and oil and gas, right? It's very hard because we're already dealing with unconventional oil. We're already talking about a lot of issues where it comes to the extraction of oil. And that's already perceived. In many, I mean, you talk to anybody here in Europe and the word is tar sands. There is no oil sands, bitumen. And it actually, it's, it's, it's painful to my sensibilities, because, uh, you know, I, I see the other side as well, right? But I think, if anything, that consumer, my point is, regardless of what is right or wrong, that consumer interest and focus is important for companies because it forces them. It forces them to be more transparent. This is what I believe. Yeah, no, the, the days of, of, of sweeping it under the carpet, there, there's, there's somebody under the carpet with a social media platform that's going to call you no. out, which you're right. That's how change sometimes happens. you got to force, force the hand. Well, you even you, with whistleblowers, it's the same. Yeah. No, it's such an interesting world we're in. But you're right. A lot of these things that get kind of, I love what you said. You almost, it's like if you want to bend something straight, you almost have to bend it past where it is so it can come back to that middle mm. ground. Like you've got to push those extremes to sometimes get the narrative or to, get, to make enough noise mm. that it actually creates change. Because if mm. not, we'll just like, well, we'll just move on to the thing that's, 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 that's crying, that's, that's, you know, more on fire. Hey, you touched mm. on something and I'm always curious, and this is maybe the root of kind of beyond the echo. When Alberta comes up around the dinner table in Sweden, which I'm sure it does on a regular basis, what's the, what's the, what's the narrative? What's the view? You said tar sands, which is like, oh, it feels like, okay, there's one black eye. I know maybe um, it's the word I shouldn't have said, but it's not my view. No, no, no. I, no, I appreciate that. This, this is a view from outside. and We all, we all need to take that moment. And I always joke, you can't see the label when you're inside the bottle. And we are sitting squarely in our bottle in Alberta. What is the, you know, and obviously you're, you're, you're in Alberta. You, you, you've got a horse in the race. We joked offline. You own a home here. Yeah. You have families here. When you think about Alberta now that you've been been away for a couple of years and you look back in on us and you know also hear what people are talking about when it comes to even global media or some of the storyline, like what's the world look like? What, take me to the dinner table in Sweden on a Friday night when you guys Canada. decide to talk about talk about about what is a Canada? What is an Alberta maybe? <laughs> but you know what? First, if I go about Canada himself, right? Canada is an, ex I mean, as a country, you know, worldwide known, right? And to Swedish people, specifically into the Nordics, it's a very rich country. It's a very polite country. It's a country with, it's a country and land of the opportunity. I mean, it really is, right? Yeah. And what people see it, and, and it is, it is, you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, I not, yeah that's not just a brand. It, it's an amazing place. Sure. <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm making the clarification because I always think <laughs> in terms of branding. I'm like, that's not just the brand, but... Um, We're reading but, off well, of our show notes, storyline, boom, 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 <laughs> hit your bullet points. <laughs> what Tyler gave me, no. But no, what I'm saying, no, seriously. So like, it, it's just, you know, it, it's also a place where, and this, this is what I think is amazing about Canada is, you know, we've got that melting pot of cultures and, 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 and people know that people always say to me here, and this is people I work with people I've met socially, right? They say to me, Oh, it must be lovely to live in Canada. We know that a lot of different cultures live in Canada together well and of course we know that there's been ups and downs in Canada as well the road has not been easy there's still things cropping here and there that's natural in any yeah. country however the acceptance and that melting pot of being from many different places and being able to live relatively peacefully together is actually quite admired internationally especially with obviously immigration policies in Europe right in the last 10 to 20 years um, Sweden has struggled a lot themselves um, they're really trying to integrate different uh, people here and they're they're trying to find best ways to do so so they really see that as a that's great that you've managed in some way that integration or you're maybe farther up that line um, okay interesting so, i was i was curious about cultural diversity because again i've never been mm. to sweden you talk about you know how much acceptance and just equal like how equal things are from a gender perspective 
But from mm. a diversity, they still look at Canada as maybe, hey, you guys have done that really well. We can take some notes from that. That's interesting. Absolutely. Oh, cool. And, and okay, especially right in the last 10 years with, with having that huge immigration float in here, they're trying to yeah. really reskill people, help them with the language. Um, they still have a lot. They have a lot to go through. Um, okay. And and I think that they are looking at other in other countries and seeing, OK, how can we do this better? Um, they have a great system, for example, here that you can learn Swedish uh, free uh, from the state when you arrive. Um, and, and for example, that is one of many measures that they've put in so they can integrate. But the the influx of immigration has been quite high. And so I think that they're really, you know, they're really working through that right now, from what well, I understand. The last 10 years in Europe, that's really shifted aggressively. And there's been a very lot of much media so. and a lot of sad stories and a lot of maybe some, very, again, very there's a lot of good much. stories, but we, but the media tends to pick up the sad stories. <laughs> mm -hmm. But Swedish people are very respectful about that. So for example, you know, they'll always turn towards equality and integration and, and actually trying to minimize the conversation around politics. You know, they want to make sure that, you know, everybody has a say, everybody has a right to their opinion. So I think that really helps. But when they look to Canada, if I can say it's Canada as a whole, that's the impression I've gotten. Um, when it comes to Alberta, it's quite interesting because um, the people that know Alberta know Alberta well. They know it's very heavily re reliant on oil and gas. Um, like I said, not always the right terminology. What I consider not the most appropriate terminology based on what they don't know or what they hear in the media um, about what we are and what we produce. Um, and I think that what is thought about Alberta is very rich province. Um, and that actually helps and supplies a lot of the rest of Canada. Um, then we have Ontario. People know Ontario very well as well, of course. Toronto, the big cities. Um, but other than that, there's not a lot, a lot of knowledge about it. So actually, even you know, even even conversations around unconventional oil and and explaining what kind of uh, resources we have in the province um, is very much a new conversation for a lot of people and how much we export to the U.S. So these are all uh, new conversations to a lot of people here. Well, let's be honest. It's a story that, you know, the oil and gas industry, I believe personally has not done a really good job of stewarding their version of the narrative. It's just like, well, head down, just do what we do. And, but all of a sudden yeah. the last 10 years, that's changed. The world is looking and paying attention and whether it's pipelines or whether it's tar sands, I, I don't, it's not a word I use often living in this province. <laughs> no, no, for sure. I don't um, think it's a useful word to be really honest with you. And, well, I, and I, I there's think lots of history of where that word came from and kind of, yeah, exactly. you know, the deem, yeah, the very in negative intention of, of it for sure. That, that's what I mean. Mm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, from the perspective of, you know, we're going through some changes yep. in Alberta, obviously 2015, you, you know, you were here when things kind of took a left yep. turn and we've been working our way back, but there's a lot of transformation happening in Calgary. And I think there's a narrative that we're trying to get out there. So curious as mm -hmm. someone like yourself, probably not around the dinner table, but your own views of like talking to people and being connected to the city, kind of what are you hearing on the outside in terms of like, yeah, we've got this bit of a tech thing going that's starting to get traction Ag is yep. doing well. I don't know. It should, I shouldn't put words. What are you hearing kind of, yep. you know, being being outside but still connected? I think one of the things I hear outside is that need for not, not just transformation, but still that need for more diversification in the province. And I think that comes a lot from the expats that are living here that, that have maybe an outward inward view. Um, you know, and I think what I would say is, you know, that would that would mean modernizing, updating infrastructure, reskilling, 
But more than anything, it's really that case for diversification. And it's it's funny because we I've gotten into conversations and just from my own opinion, I understand that Alberta did try to diversify in the non-oil sector in the 1980s and 1990s. And there was actually this is, even this is not a news storyline. You know what I mean? Like there's no, some, uh, no. Yeah, and 100%. I've done some, just some interesting reads about how even there was, you know, government policy that included aid loans, um, you know, to companies in the non-energy sector. And it was around at that point, the provincial government uh, put around one 1.8 billion for that. So obviously it's not a new story, but I think we're talking about diversification in very different terms these days because we're talking about new industries that are coming up. We're talking specifically that reduction of the oil and gas sector or people not wanting that dependency. And also that, you know, if we talk about relying on one resource, right? And talking about the times that we were, you know, that were the recession hitting in, in Alberta, you know, you were dependent on, on one thing, right? And that meant lower prices, higher competition, producers, you know, producers were securing their share of supply around the world. And a lot of governments, you know, in major markets were picking the slack up for that, right? So it's, it's because of that. I mean, if anything, at a minimum, that should be seen as a case for diversification, I mean, if you look at things like the Keystone XL pipeline halted by the Biden administration, you know, it, whether it's right or wrong, it's irrelevant to me. It's more the fact that, OK, that's another issue, you know, then how are we going to move forward for that? And how much reliant were we on that? Um, you know, same same conversation reactively around the need of diversification for you know, having uh, refineries, you know, that are now built in the U.S., there's that infrastructure that's being sent elsewhere, right, for manufacturing. So there's such a need for, you know, for that transformation in the province to accelerate, and not only when there's a recession, to think about it. And I think Alberta is getting there. I know that we have a recovery plan. I've read about it, and, and I think it's great. Like, uh, you know, but, but a lot of focus that the industry that we talk about and that I believe that we can do now is that, Focus more on green energy, renewable energy, right? Um, I know that by 2026, I think it was 26% of Alberta's electricity capacity is going to come from renewable sources, which is great, you know, and that's up from 17%. Um, but even more can be done. And, it, and if you can only take one example of a greener um, oil and gas welfare state, you can look at Norway, Right. And yeah. all the changes that Norway that comes has up made. so often on shows. I was like, where do you look in the world for leadership? And Norway comes up re on a regular basis from guests. When I ask, you know, who do we yeah. look to, who do we look to for inspiration on how they've done it differently than here? Well, it, and it's, in, it's very interesting in the case of Norway because they were one trillion oil fund. Do you know what I mean? And they were the largest, uh, the world's largest sovereign wealth fund. You know, and then to take that money, right, and to invest into wind and solar projects is something that actually Alberta could identify with easily. And I know, I you know, even Suncor has had wind projects in the in the past. I know, you know, I know that this is growing in the province, so it, it's it's not something that isn't happening. But the problem is to what capacity and how much money can we invest more in these things? And really, it is about that. And also, a province that is very sunny, right? It's it's a perfect place actually for wind and solar. Make it an energy conversation, not just an oil and gas conversation. And I think that that's, you know, because we I live mean. in the, we, this whole energy abundance concept and the world doesn't need mm. less energy. We just need more variety in our sources that actually, you know, but I love what you touched on. Like these aren't overnight changes that we're talking about. These are long term, no. like the no. whole, you know, when's the best time to plant a tree 20 years ago. But if you missed it, then no, at least exactly. get it, get it planted today. <laughs> someone, no, said, exactly. someone, someone brought that up to me the other day. And I think, and also, I mean, there's a difficult conversations that I don't really even want to get to around climate change uh, and around, yeah. you know, uh, environmental stability thinking, 
you know, thinking about things from a different lens. I think one of the things that I've really learned coming outside of um, the province is that the importance and the gravity around climate change. Um, and, and I'm not looking at it from a Greta Thunberg perspective either. I'm not going all the way that way. But I'm just saying, I mean, there's some serious, serious things that we have to consider, you know, for and, and that we can't just put, you know, that we have to be able to say, OK, what can companies do? Right. And how open can we be about this? And where are we now versus where we can get to? And I think we have to have more honest conversations in the province. And and also, I mean, you know, this whole I mean, there's so much that can be said, I think, about uh, Alberta. Um, but I, I guess the, the reason diversification comes to me a lot is because I just see the wealth in the province. I see how much it does for the rest of Canada and I see its potential. Um, and I'm by no means uh, an economist. Um, I can tell you a lot more about what, you know, what that could be and the economic benefit there. But I, I really believe that um, we are now, you know, f- focusing on many things. I mean, when I looked at the Alberta recovery plan, you know, the need to bring innovation, right, foreign direct investment, you know, they had a very, very specific plan of what they want to do, right? So if they follow through, um, and, and they really focus on, on diversifying in terms of industry, on types of jobs, on resources, you know, I mean, things could change, but like you said, it's not a, it's not a slow road. No. And I think even I've been doing the podcast for two years and even just the theming from the guests and talking about our tech innovation and their startups and yeah. even the amount of venture capital flowing into the province to kind of fund this. Cause you need the, you need the fuel yeah. for the, for the engine, right? Exactly. That's all changed significantly in the last couple of years. And although mm. I wasn't here in the eighties, I wasn't here in the nineties. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly very optimistic, and I think that this low oil price environment has contributed to kind of forcing our hand a little bit more. Back to your point of like, let's just say it, but then oh, once oil and gas comes back, we'll just go back and focus focus on what works because it does. But this mm-hmm. has been a bit of a long stretch. You know, Alberta has held its breath before and kind of got our head above water right away. And I, I certainly in no way want to celebrate it because I know a lot of people, like you said, have been very negatively affected. <laughs> Being careful with yeah. my own comms on, on on this one. Yeah, exactly. But force sometimes you need to kick in the ass. Let's be blunt. <laughs> But also there's a sense of pride, which I really like as well on the other side for Albertans, that they can really withstand. And I like that, you know, they come in early, they leave early, they work or sorry, they come in very early. They start early. They don't leave early. They leave normally. No, they, they don't. Come no, in they early. don't. <laughs> yeah, they come, they, they leave a bit earlier. But anyways, the point is that they work very early. They yeah, work no, hard. There's some grit. There's complain. some grit in this province. <laughs> yeah. And I like that, you know, I think that has taught me a lot, right? My personal perseverance and grit towards work. It's like you go to work, you may be in the middle of a minus 30 blizzard. It doesn't matter. You better get to work. You know, I, I love that about Alberta, you know, I, I really do, do. I do. It is there. There is a level of kind of, I'll be blunt, get shit done factor here. That is incredibly yeah. high <laughs> and the ability. And I don't know, I've, I've worked in other parts of Canada where, you know, you meet people and yeah, okay, well here there's a like, Hey, let me introduce you to so-and-so or, Hey, I think we can create value together. It's a very mm. collaborative I still think we're thriving from the sense of abundance versus the sense of scarcity. And even mm. though with this downturn, it's more like, oh, hey, let me introduce you to so-and-so. Or, hey, you know, I can't use mm. this service, but I know who can. Or let me connect you yes. with this person. I've worked in another part of the country where once you're in inside a group, like you're on the inside group, that'll happen. Mm. But here you can meet a stranger through another stranger that you'd also just met, even like how you and I met. And next thing yes. you're having an amazing conversation and find out you've got some common ground and then opportunity starts to come from that. Alberta does that, I think. And again, I'm biased. I think it does that incredibly well. <laughs> I completely agree. Can I not tell you the amounts of networks that I built in, Cal- in, in Calgary and Alberta it's while great. I was there? Mm-hmm. 
and and I can I you know what I miss those days. I actually miss those days because the ability, like you said, to meet strangers, to strike up conversations, to look for business opportunities. I mean, when I worked in in trade and investment, right? We, it was all about business development. I mean, the amount of opportunity, you know, on companies we would put in touch with each other for different services, um, and then they did business together. They opened up in Canada. I mean, there was such a sense of pride of being able to make so many connections and actually it, very, like you said, it comes from a place from abundance. And and I think it's a lot about perspective and the way people are. And I think people, like I said, it's that, it's that, um, you know, it's a city where people work hard. Um, they do what they have to do. They go home. It's great for networking. It's great for opportunities. And that's exactly why I see so much potential, you know, and I, and I know it's not a, it's not a, you know, it's not a tomorrow thing. Um, it, and I know there's a lot of critics around this whole diversification thing as well, but I, I do think I'm the, the difference is I'm not talking about not relying on uh, oil and gas. I'm talking about increasing diversity in other areas, not completely eliminating the source. And I think that's I, the difference. No, this polarization that we love to live in in our world right now, if you're pro-environment, yeah. you're anti-energy. And if you're, we need to diversify. So we're going to turn the taps off in five years. I'm like, that's just, exactly. it's, it's kind of, it's just rhetoric. It's kind of silly. No, we need a broader conversation that's more inclusive and exactly. takes things into consideration. And so it's Danny, the same the, thing about the, climate change. So it's the same idea, right? No, you're right. So Danny, big question. When yeah. are you moving back? When are you moving back? Because we need we need people like you here. <laughs> your, I, I, your, mo I, your, your mom or your family told me to ask this question. No, I'm just kidding. I, I, I would I, not be surprised if my mother asked you that. <laughs> but um, you know what? I think that I have a, a bit yet to to grow and learn. Um, I would like to get involved more in. So I work in technology, specifically uh, digital technology at IKEA, and that's the area I lead within PR and, and marketing and, and, and media affairs specifically. Um, one of the things that I really want to get into that I think is also a very interesting idea for other places is that uh, that concept of data security, cybersecurity, data privacy. Um, I'm learning a lot about that right now. I understand its importance. You know, I'm working a lot with the European Commission, understanding what GDPR uh, does, what it doesn't do, what it covers, what it doesn't, what technology companies can do to be better. I think that could have been a lot of benefit in specific in, 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 in Canada. Right. Uh, because data, obviously, is such a commodity now. Um, it's a very it's interesting conversation early. as we think about digital citizenship and what that means. And exactly. as we as also we don't leave people behind. But at the same time, mm -hmm. as this digital infrastructure that we're now living in grows and expands, what are the checks and measures we're putting in place? I think there's a lot of, that's an interesting, exactly. I think we could do a whole nother podcast series. Just I know, and I'm, I won't this. get into much of it, but I think I want to grow yeah. that area so I can then bring value back. Mm, and I want like, to come back to like bring that. value, but I want to learn well that value and rescale myself and get strong in those areas where I can bring an added benefit. And that's my road now where I'm on. Well, I, I've heard you loud and clear that you are you're a lifelong learner, and what it's the sixty year degree. <laughs> I hear people talking about now. There I is no it. there is no one and done. You know there is no. Amen. Yeah, and I think that that's fantastic. And there's a lot of really cool movement we're happening, whether it's, you know, with SAID and their School of Advanced Digital. I think the post-secondary yes. is also going to play a huge role in transformation. And you talked about just the level of exactly. education that exists in Sweden. And it's yeah. at the root of everything. You know, if you look at the countries that and have the best now. access. It's becoming yes. digital. Yeah, there are so no now you have education. access, I have access, everyone will have access. And that's <sighs> the thing. We need to give people more access to education. And that's what we need to focus on as well. It's not like only A, B, C person can go to this institution. And if you have the resources to go to that one, then you're welcome. Everybody has the right to education. And that's no. a very difficult concept because where is that money coming from? It's very easy to say, right? Um, well, we know that, that, that the, 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 the model of, of pay to play, like obviously in our U.S. Exactly. Our US, our US neighbors here, 
but then you hear the bitterness around, well, I paid to play, but now I can't get a job and now I can't do this. And it's really, exactly. I think it's, uh, I, you know, I love that everything's up for grabs and I know that can feel kind of overwhelming, but we're a pretty resilient mm-hmm. bunch as humans, quote unquote, you know, that <laughs> goal and humans, we, we will, we will figure it out, but there it's, there's some rough things along the way. And unfortunately there's some people that, that there's a risk of people getting left behind if we don't focus on that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And also that, and just, you know, and this again could be a conversation on its own, so I'm not going to go into another tangent, but the other really quick thing to say here is, you know, one of the other things like in your question about coming back is I've learned something as well is that I used to want to focus my career specifically in an area where I could grow and then come back. I realize now that it's also about diversification of the person. You know, I have to learn new skills, different skills, advanced skills in different areas that I didn't need to. I don't need to be an expert just in this area. I can know about this area. I can actually know this about that area. Maybe in the softer skills, it's easier than, say, uh, chemical engineering, right? But even some of those skills are very much transferable. So it's really about how much can we learn about different areas and how can we be, because, you know, the future is also automated. So how much more jobs can one person do with less resources? Because there will be less resources needed in the future for different types of jobs. And then what skills are left, which are oftentimes starting to be more celebrated, which is the soft side. Like you said, the softer skills around communication, <laughs> yes. abstract, abstract thinking, because that linear you know, calculation, I can now just put that into a machine and it'll do it for me better than exactly. I would have ever done it. But then how do I make the connection between those two data points later and actually turn it into something? Anyway, yeah, this is, whoo, we're going down a whole nother road I'm here. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. telling you, I'm stopping, <laughs> but, but an interesting conversation there for us as well. Absolutely. Danny, thank you so much for your time, your perspective. I really enjoyed our conversation and I hopefully gave the audience just a, hey, I didn't know that or hey, I never thought about that way, which is my mm-hmm. ultimate goal at the end of the show. So thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed our chat. Thank you for having me. My absolute pleasure. <laughs>